Lord, we just thank for this evening. We thank for this opportunity to gather together to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we go through this study in the book of Acts. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, we're in Acts. Oh, yeah, this yep. is Sunday. This is That's Sunday night. New, 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 new study again. Good. All right. The book that we normally just refer to as Acts, the official title of it is the Acts of the Apostles. So it's a complete, complete title on it. Uh, the author of it is generally concerned, uh, considered to be Luke. It is pretty much unanimous amongst all the ancient uh, church fathers. The um, re reason why we know that it, believe that it's Luke is for a lot of different reasons. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is almost 100% considered to be Luke. Uh, there's nothing in it that says Luke was the writer, but it's, everybody has traditionally given it to Luke all through history. And this one, the book of the Acts of the Apostles starts out, the former treatise, which I have written, O Theophilus, uh, tells us that this is a continuation of the book of Luke, or a sequel to the book of Luke. All right? Uh, Theophilus is in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, Luke says that he was writing a statement of, you know, the proofs of Jesus Christ to Theophilus. Uh, oh, excellent Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus. The word Theophilus literally means lover of God. Or uh, it's Theo, God, and uh, Philio, which is brotherly love. So many people have assumed that this is uh, the, the Theophilus. <laughs> was just a general group of people, but because in Luke he said, oh, excellent Theophilus, we've, most people believe that he was talking to somebody of great authority and position. Uh, because where that term is used in the scriptures in Acts 20, um, excuse me, where did I write it down? Anyway, where it's used in the scriptures, it's used of Festus and Felix, which were governors, Roman governors, and that was a term that was used for them. Oh, excellent, and it's used as a royal type of a, a greeting, so it's not likely that it's a group, but it could be because we are the king's kids and everything, so he could be using it. But it's more likely he was writing to somebody. Verse one. Um, one of the reasons that we think that it was Luke is because he was a companion of Paul. All right? Somewhere in the second or third journey, he started traveling with Paul. He was a false physician, most likely kept a chronicle of everything. Many times in both the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, there's a lot of very specific medical terms. And Luke was a physician, so that's, they, they looked to Luke and say, well, Here's another proof that it's probably Luke. Luke was the one that would talk about the types of diseases that Jesus healed and, and those type of things. Um, and all through here, he talks about the diseases people had. So uh, they generally think that it was him. Uh, the level of the, of the Greek writing 
is very high, so it's indicating an educated person, highly educated person wrote the Greek, the Greek and the vocabulary that's used in, in the books of Luke and Acts. So again, Luke fits into that, you know, as a physician, he would have been well-trained, well-educated, he would have had the vocabulary. Um, I don't do the Greek, but they say that the Greek, when, when Peter, Peter writes is a very low-level Greek because he was a fisherman. Wasn't that he was uneducated completely, but he was a fisherman. He was a businessman. Um, Paul is very, very um, complex things, but his Greek is not good uh, because he was mostly studied in Hebrew. And so his Greek, uh, even though his arguments were good, his actual writing in Greek was not <laughs> strong. And so they're saying that uh, Luke is very uh, elegant Greek very educated Greek uh, use on it. And uh, in the book of Acts, there comes a place around verses, uh, chapters uh, 17 where he starts using the word we and us. And so it has to be somebody who is a companion of Paul that's writing the book of Acts. And we know that Titus and uh, Silas and Barnabas and and uh, many others in, in Acts 20 are listed as people that were sent away to do other things. And Paul constantly, Timothy and Titus and Sil Silas were always being sent away. You know, Paul was saying, go check, go check this place, go check this place. You read, we read through his uh, epistles and he was always sending these guys to go check the places that they had left. Let's make sure those guys are still there. And this one, this person who wrote Acts was always seems to be with him. It was one who was never sent away which would have been his physician. Uh, the location of the book of Acts' writing is Rome. All right, so it's written from Rome. It's, uh, and again, would, be, would fit Luke. Luke was, had spent much time with Paul in Rome. The date of the writing most likely would fit to right at the end of Paul, Paul's life, which would have been 64 to 67 AD. Um, some people like to place it as late as 90, but again, we have no reference to Jerusalem being destroyed, and anybody writing from a Christian or Jewish perspective, the destruction of Jerusalem would be a big deal. So every book in the Bible, as far as we can tell, was written before the destruction of, of Jerusalem because Jewish guys, would have, it would have been a big deal to them to say, hey, you know, Jerusalem's gone. <laughs> Uh, Jesus is returning, and that would have been a big deal to them because as we're going to look in here, when Jesus left, he left from Mount Olivet into the clouds, and the angel said, as you saw him leave, he will return. So anybody, even from the Christian, from the Jewish Christian perspective, is going to say, Jerusalem's not there anymore, so number one, it's got to be rebuilt before he can return to Jerusalem. <laughs> and so there's a big deal there. And so, so we know the New Testament books were written before 70 A.D., which was the destruction of Jerusalem. Question? Jesus left from Mount Olivet? Mount Olivet. After he was resurrected? After he was resurrected. Right. Yep, we'll see that in this first chapter. Yeah. He resurrected from the dead. He spent, he spent 40 days with the, with the disciples and was seen by lots of people. Then he was... Uh, translated to heaven, and the and the 
angels, which we'll get more into that maybe today, but <laughs> by next week, the angel said he will return just as you saw him leave. Right. Let's see. The basic theme of the book is the development of the early church. All right, we're going to start. Luke's first manuscripts were, were about Jesus' birth up until, up until he died. And right after his resurrection, the first 14 or so verses of Acts is a repeat, a, a re-summary of the end of Luke. Same stories, a little bit little more detail, but the same story. Then he goes into how two big divisions, and the first one is the local Jerusalem ministry where the, Jew, where, the, where the disciples were starting. And then we go into the foreign missionary trips of chapters 5 through 28. And mostly at that point we shift to Saul or, or Paul. Before that we have Philip and Peter and, and, and James and lots of things going on. Um, we have the first chapter is just no church. The church has not been, does not exist in chapter 1 because the Holy Spirit has not come. They're just setting the stage. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given. Chapter f and the second part of that is Peter's first message. Uh, chapter 3 is Peter's second message. Uh, and then chapter 4 is Peter uh, addressing the Sanhedrin. Then we see the power of the Holy Spirit in chapter 5. Six is the selection of deacons for the church because the first big problem of the church is developed. Uh, seven is the first martyr of the church, which is Stephen. Uh, chapter eight is Philip and Peter preaching to two different groups. And then we start going from there. Chapter nine, Saul gets converted. Peter goes to the Gentiles. And then we have Paul going out on his mission trips. <laughs> And he makes three mission trips over, over that period of time. And this is what I've said when we talk about this. Acts is a book that moves fast. It's not until we read the epistles that we'll read, he spent three years here, he spent five years here, you know, you know two years here, he spent six months here. Uh, and we realize that even though lots of things happened in Acts, there were lots of times when just normal life was going on. And we will follow this quickly, and we'll see highlights of his life. Isn't that a 40 years of history? Yes, approximately. <laughs> it's about 40 years. It goes from the, the resurrection of Jesus to Paul's death. And the resurrection of Jesus was somewhere in 27 to 30 AD, and Paul's death is in in uh, 30, 37, uh, 67, 65, 67. So we're right there at, you know, right there at 30 to you know, 40 years, depending on exactly where they stop. So, so Luke is writing from somebody else's account. He wasn't around. For Luke, uh, for the book of Luke, he is writing from somebody else's testimony. He's a, he is a investigator. Up until he joins Paul, he's basically using other people's stories as an investigator. As soon as he switches to we and us, he's reporting firsthand information. But he is somebody who is trusted because he spent 
He was what we would say college educated, and he knew, you know, being a precise, you know, physician, he kept good records and, and looked things up and, and got the reports. And you said Luke Rodax. Luke Rodax. I don't think we're ever told that. As I recall, I don't think we're ever told that. I've never heard. So I'm not going to say I didn't research to see where he was at before he met up with Saul. Yeah. I, there was never even a question that came to my mind. <laughs> he, was a, he was a physician someplace. Which meant he probably wondered, you know, being a physician meant that he probably was assigned to some royal, you know, some royal house or dignitary's house, uh, because that's usually what happened. You know, there weren't any hospitals. And you very rarely just set up a shingle back then and said, I'm a doctor, because most people couldn't afford you. Uh, you treated whoever came to you, and you helped them out. But pretty much you were a doctor was assigned to somebody's house and stayed with them in, the, in those days. All right, Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The former treatises which I have made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he, he was taken up after that through the Holy Spirit had commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for, for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto him, Is not it for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his own power? But you shall receive power. After that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, he went up as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which said unto them, you, you men of Galilee, why are you standing gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which was taken from you into heaven so sh shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. All right. So here we have the introduction part, which is where we know that it's Luke writing to the same person that the Gospel of Luke was, was written to. The former treatise, or the former, former writing, all right, the former document that I wrote you, and a treatise has this idea of well-researched out paper. All right, so this former treatise, what I had made to you, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. This person that he's writing to had some interest in who Jesus was might have even been, you know, it, it could very simple. You said, where was, where was Luke before? Maybe this is, you know, maybe this person he's writing to was the one who sent him, saying, I've heard about this person. You go. I know that you're a researcher. You go check him out. And I'm just speculating there, but it could be something that 
of that nature. He's writing to somebody, because in, in Luke he says, oh, excellent, so this is somebody high up. So it is quite possible he was sent by this person to go do the research. We don't know, but, this, but that would fit. If this person is a high-ranking official wanting to know, he's not going to go himself. And he may not be able to go. Right? If he is assigned by Rome someplace, he wouldn't be able to just, well, I'm going to leave my territory and go check this Jesus guy out. He would have to send somebody to go, <laughs> go, find, go find out for him. And he says, you wanted to know all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Jesus had built up a reputation in, Jerusalem, in, in, in Israel. He was the traveling evangelist that created miracles. Josephus described him as a magician, because you know, he didn't look at him as the son of God. He said there, there was this magician who taught lots of good things and did tricks. Right? Uh, he really didn't want to go to the idea that he healed people and, and raised people from the dead. Uh, but this is the reputation, and the news of Jesus got out. Everywhere, and I, you know, you've got to think about this. Everywhere Jesus went, a crowd gathered. And, and we know how that can happen even in our day. If somebody famous shows up someplace, it doesn't take long, if they're famous enough, for a crowd to gather wherever they go. This is Jesus. Everywhere he goes, a crowd gathers. His reputation is out there. And so Luke has been sent by somebody, or asked by somebody, I want to know what he's teaching. I want to know what he's doing. Tell me about this man. Make it legitimate. I want to know, not, not hearsay, but I want you to check out the real individuals and get testimony. And, and it says, until the day which he was taken up, after that, he, through the Holy Spirit, he gave commandments to the apostles. So he said, here's my time. I'm giving you from the time he was born, because Luke is one of the only two books that talk about the birth of Jesus, all the way up till his, his ascension. And then this section here goes into what's happened after he's gone, laying the foundation of the church. So this is what he's saying. I'm giving you all this information, and the delivering of the Holy Spirit. So this is kind of an interesting starting up position on it that he's going this, I've done the research. I've checked this guy out. He's 30, 34 years old when he dies and, and resurrected. And me, I'm going to write you these books. Two books about this man. And laying out that history. Verse 3 says, To whom he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking things pertaining to the kingdom of God. All right? So he says, He showed himself alive. Paul is going to make reference to this at some point. He goes, I'm telling you that Jesus is alive, and if you don't believe me, there are more than 500. 500 people alive that, that have seen him. Uh, you know, says, go, go talk to them. Jesus didn't just hide after he rose from the dead. He spent time with the disciples. He encouraged them. He built them up. He talked to them. He taught. He, he showed himself to people. Uh, we're told that he had 
breakfast with the disciples when, when they thought that he was dead, you know, and, and learned, you know, Peter said, I'm going fishing, and he took most of the disciples with him, seems how they were fishermen. And Jesus meets them on the beach and says, here, have breakfast with me, and he's got the fish all cooked and ready to go for breakfast. He eats breakfast with them, and then they go all over the place for 40 days with him. They, they'd had, you know, they'd had their four years with him, now they get 40 more days with him. What, and where are we at? We're at the time of between Passover and Pentecost. All right? And this is something that we understand. Jesus died as the Passover lamb. He would have died on most likely a Wednesday or, or at the very latest Thursday. He rose again on the first fruit celebration on Sunday, the first Sunday after Passover, his first fruits. Then, 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. And that is when the Holy Spirit will come upon the disciples. The time frame that we're looking at right now in chapter 1 of Acts is 41, 42 days after Passover. Give, it, give or take, depending on you know, 42, 43, somewhere in that, in that, in that ballpark, because you had Jesus in the grave for a couple, for three days, and we're not at Pentecost yet, and he walked with them for 40 days. All right, so we have this whole picture here, and he says he proved, he showed himself alive after his passion. Now I'm not sure if you've ever heard this term, but when Jesus died, it's called the passion. And passion means the idea of suffering, extreme pain and, and, suffer, and suffering. Uh, in Europe, they still do passion plays, which are the, the plays from the time of the triumphant entry to the time that Jesus dies. And they give plays to help people see what's going on there. So he says, he gave infallible, you know, he was alive after his passion. He died and he proved it. How did he prove it? Well, we know he ate food. We know he showed up to the disciples. He kept showing up places. And he proved it by showing up to the women first and having their testimony go to the, go to the disciples and say, hey, Jesus is alive. And a lot of people make fun of that. But, you know, in that day and age, it had to have been who actually told it because they would have never said the women told them. It would not have made sense to them to make that statement if it wasn't for Jesus showing up to them. And he says, in speaking of things that pertain to the kingdom of God, all through Jesus' walk with the disciples in the Gospels, he talked about the kingdom of God. And the, and the disciples, that's pretty much all they heard. We're, gonna, we're here to start a kingdom. The Messiah is here. We're going to have our kingdom. And they never fully understood. When Jesus died on the cross, they were devastated. Because as far as they were concerned, they were, they were, they were going to be next. Their Messiah, that they had pinned all their hopes on for a new kingdom, was dead. And every other person who claimed to be a Messiah, when they, when they died, their followers were killed. So as far as the disciples were concerned, they've killed, the, they've killed Jesus. We, we pinned all our hopes on the wrong guy. To find him alive again was a big deal. 
big deal. And we're gonna see some interesting things when we look in here um, from their attitude even at that point. Verse 4 says, and, they, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them, saying they should not leave Jerusalem until. <laughs> All right? So he says, you're going to stay in Jerusalem. Again, this is a big deal because these guys are from Galilee. That means their business is in Galilee. Their, the bulk of their money is in Galilee. They're fishermen, so I guess they could go fishing in the Jordan River and make some, make, you know, support themselves a little bit. Um, but, you know, this would be just like us going on a trip and being told, oh, by the way, you now get to spend an extra, an extra 10 more days here where, where, I, where I've left you. Get to stay here. Uh, not an easy, easy thing for people. This is one of the things when, when the people went to Passover, from the, especially the north, they'd have to go to Passover and then they stayed for Pentecost. That meant they stayed in Jerusalem for 50 days or went back and forth. And by the time you got back, you'd have to come back. You know, if you, if you took the two, two weeks to get there and two weeks to get back, you, you might as well have just stayed there because you had one week at home. So they stayed in Jerusalem during, during that 50 days or in the vicinity. These guys are from Galilee. This is not their home. They don't, probably don't have much family there other than generally the Jews. So this is a big deal for them. And Jesus is saying, oh, by the way, I'm going to leave, but you, get, you stay here until you get what I'm telling you you're going to have. Another, another, at this point, probably another week, because I think we're 42, 43 days into, because he walks with them for 40 days. Okay, that's what he just said. They, they had 40 days of proofs. With, with, with Jesus. And there was, like I say, three days in the grave, resurrection, so we're about 30, 43 days, give or take, and they're going to be receiving the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, so seven, you know, seven, seven days later. They don't know how long they have to wait. Note that he says, wait for the promise of the Father which you have heard of me. Did Jesus tell them that it would be on Pentecost? Nowhere in the scriptures. He told them to wait. How hard is it to wait when you don't know how long you're going to wait? This is them. They're not even at their home. And they're being told, wait. You're going to have a gift from the Father, wait. He says, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. So he does give them some idea that, they're, that not many days. Okay? How much is not many days? I don't know. He, he, he might have been talking about, a, a, you know, a month, a weeks. Who knows? You know, they don't know. And there's, a, there's this ambiguity there. He's saying, just Wait. One of the hardest things for anybody to do, and us as Christians to do, is sometimes wait. Wait on the Lord and wait for him to tell us what to do. And we get anxious so easy. And we're going, God, I got tired of waiting. I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> I'm going to do it my way. And he says, well, I was going to tell you two minutes from now. <laughs> you know, uh, and usually, if you think about it, the time we act is 
one day too early or a couple minutes too early, and we realized if we had just continued waiting, things would have been right. In this case, they're going to be obedient. Even though they don't know how long they're waiting, he says, wait. Wait in Jerusalem. There is going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know that they really realized what that was. They, you know, he says, John baptized with water. Jesus was baptized. We know many, a couple of Jesus' disciples were disciples of John the Baptist and would have been baptized. It's quite possible when the master got baptized, anybody who hadn't been baptized probably was baptized by John. You know, it doesn't tell us that, but can you imagine, you know, the person that you're following gets, does something, most likely <laughs> you're going to do it. Uh, Jesus got baptized, we're all going to go get baptized. <laughs> and you, you, I can almost picture that happening. You know, he got baptized, we're, we're, we're headed down to that river, we're going to get baptized too. Um, and he says, you're going to get something better than the baptism of John. You're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Not many days. It didn't mean as they didn't fully know what that meant. They didn't know how much their life was going to be changed. Now we have examples all through the scripture of people being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit came on them. Saul, the King Saul, was baptized by the Holy Spirit and he started prophesying and everybody's going, is he one of the, pre is he one of the priests now? Is he a prophet now? Because he was prophesying. He was teaching. We see over and over again the Spirit coming upon people in, the, in that day and, and engulfing them and controlling them. And this first part of Acts talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Paul always changed it to the Holy Spirit indwelt them. I, I've always believed it's the same thing. That upon was just the Hebrew way of thinking about it, and the Greek way of thinking about it was that the Holy Spirit was in you. And, uh, but the idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, I like upon better, <laughs> because I am encircled and completely surrounded by the Holy Spirit, and engulfed by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter, it's the same thing. Huh? Saturated. saturated. I'm, I, I'm being changed because I am, I am indwelled, you know, I am inside the Holy Spirit and he is changing me. And this is what we see here. This, this idea of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. I don't know if they fully understood it. They knew that Jesus had power. They knew that the Holy Spirit had come upon Jesus and that was a big change. When Jesus was baptized with, by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, Everything about his ministry changed. There was a power that was displayed that wasn't being displayed before. And he started healing people and doing these miraculous things. And so they understood a little bit of what it meant to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But I don't even think they understood it. Most Christians don't fully understand what it means to be totally engulfed in the Holy Spirit and have the power of God right there. And we see the Acts of the Apostles, the Holy Spirit is moving and strengthening. He changes these guys who are, are afraid of cats hiding up in an upper room, and they get out and boldly preach Christ and take the punishments for it. What a change that the Holy Spirit made in them. What a change the Holy Spirit makes in us 
when we get saved and we start getting bold and we start opening up and we start talking and we start, we start ministering and we see this whole thing. Now we see when Jesus says, you're going to get the Holy Spirit not many days hence, the, here's the statement of the disciples that I have never seen before. In verse 6, And when they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What is their mindset still? Messiah, it's time for the kingdom. It's time for the millennial kingdom. All right? You said in a couple days we're going to get the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, we, you know, we're, we're, we, we had lost hope because you died. Now you're back. All right, it's time. And I think about this. The disciples, every moment, were thinking about the millennial kingdom being started immediately. They had great expectation of the kingdom of Israel being established and the millennial kingdom being established immediately. And I think maybe they were too far that way, but you know, I started thinking on the flip side. How many of us as Christians are ready and expect in great expectation of the millennial kingdom starting? Most of us probably don't think about it all that much. Yeah. Because, and this is why a lot of my talking anymore has been on the rapture, because I've been thinking about this a lot. We, as Christians, need to be getting ready for the kingdom of Christ to come. We're, we're closer. We're getting closer every day. And I'm thinking the disciples were always there ready. Is it, is it time yet? Is it time? Is it time? Now, they were following Jesus because they were looking forward to being the royalty and everything in this new kingdom because we're, we're his right-hand men. You know, it never says it, but you can hear their, you can hear their attitudes. Yeah. Hey, we've been following you. You're gonna, we're going to be the dukes and the, and the, and the princes of the, of the territories for you. And because we're, we're your right-hand men. And there they are. <laughs> is it time? Is it start, you know, we've been following you for four years. Is it, is it time to get rid of Rome and start, start this kingdom? Yeah. And this is their attitude, but yet I look at it from our point of view and how little do we consider, in most cases, the rapture, the tribulation, and the millennial kingdom, which are just around the corner. You know, we may go too far the other direction and totally ignoring it because we have gotten so wrapped up in this world. And they were, in, in one sense, too. They weren't thinking of the millennial kingdom, you know, fully as way, you know, they thought of it differently than we do anyway. All right? But they were looking. We're, we're going to be the rulers. We're going to get rid of Rome, and we're going we're to be the center of everything. Israel, the kingdom that it's supposed to have. And probably because we're not Jews, we don't really think that same way. You know, and in reality, it doesn't matter as much to us because the church is the bride of Christ. We won't be anything but with him during that whole time of the millennial kingdom. We'll be doing whatever he tells us to do, but we have a different relationship going into that because we're not Jews. We're not, we have nothing about that kingdom other than ruling with Christ. So we have a different attitude with it, but their attitude was, okay, we've been waiting for four years for this. Now we're, are you bringing it now? You know, they killed you in your back. You, know, they, they, you proved that they can't kill you. It's time for, it's time for a kingdom. We've got a guy, we've got a, we've got a leader that can rule forever because he's, he conquered death. And Jesus' answer was, 
kind of interesting. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. This is pretty powerful. Jesus over and over said that not even he, in his, at least in his earthly, earthly form, knew the times or the seasons. He goes, it's in the Father's hands. He says, I'm subject to the Father. The Father will tell me when all this is going to happen. And all through the scriptures, it's the Father who knows. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know. You just be patient and it'll happen. This is the good news for us. So many times we have to just sit back and say, God, you're in charge. This is hard for us humans. We like to be in control. All of us, it doesn't matter how strong or weak you are, we like to be in as as much control as we are capable of being in. And God is saying, no, I'm in control. And I keep talking to people and, and, and reiterate over and over again, control is an illusion. We are either under God's command or, the, the, or Satan's command over time. Yeah. Let me get this straight. Even after Jesus ascended, he still doesn't know the time. That's what I said. In his physical body, you know, there's nothing in there that says you know, that he knows. And even in Revelation, it indicates that he doesn't know. He's waiting for the Father, but I'm not going to stand strong on that. So, because he and the Father are one at this point, he's back in a spiritual world, he could know. Uh, but one of the songs I love is Jesus, it's called Jesus Get Your Bride, where he's just waiting for the Father to say, go get your bride. So there are verses that indicate that he still doesn't know because of his submitted position to God, the Father. Roughly, just roughly in Revelation. Well, no, don't take the time. Don't remember. Because I was thinking the exact opposite. Could, could. There's nothing in there that says that he does or doesn't. Uh, there's some verses that indicate that he still doesn't, but. But three and one, he should. Huh? But in three and one, it seems like he would know. It is quite possible. And that's why I will not argue that he does, that he knows at this point. But while he was on this world, he very clearly said, "Only the Father knows." And there's no verse that ever contradicts that statement. I understand. Once he's back with the Father, they're back in hope, they're three in one, and he's back in the spirit world, you know, in the spiritual world of it, he might might know. Uh, but in Revelation around chapter six or seven, he is the Lamb of God, this, the the wounded Lamb of God until that event, and then he becomes the Lion of Judah that comes to conquer the world. There's a place in time where Jesus ceases to be the sacrifice and becomes the conquering king of everything. So, again, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying that that indicates completely or not. So, while he is the sacrificed lamb, he may not know. I mean, and this is that's all speculation. We can't we can't go beyond what the Bible says, even though it will make sense that he knows everything the Father knows. Now that he's back with the Father, it, but there's nothing in there that says that he does. The only thing we know that he had ever said is only the Father knows. Now, did that mean only while he was in the flesh that only the Father knew, and then as soon as he ascended, he was given back all knowledge that the Father knows, in, including when he was to return? 
He is now back outside of time, so he may know because he's outside of time. Because he's already passed, he's already passed the, so there's, there's all kinds of arguments I could make either way, but I'm going to go with what, the, what I know the Bible says, only the Father knows. And again, and, that, and the question people will go, just what you said, well, he was in his flesh at that, he was, he was human at that time, so he had some limitations, so it's, it's possible he knows now because of his position back in heaven, outside of time, and because he's already in the millennial kingdom just like the Father, you know, so it's, it's an interesting world. When we start talking about what God knows and what God doesn't know. Uh, so when Jesus was on earth, he was slightly separated from God because he was a man? Because <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know what. We will never fully understand what Jesus did or did not know. Yeah. He is called the Theanthropos, the God-man. Yeah. He was 100% God, 100% man. And that meant that somehow he was, he was limited to his flesh, and yet over and over said he knew their thoughts and intents of their hearts, so he knew what God knew. But you also under, have to understand that there are things that God says by his command that limit himself. He says, I will remember your sin no more. How does somebody who doesn't forget anything not remember something? He says, I won't. And so he doesn't. So the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that are all God could be that they all say, okay, you're, we're all submitted to you, so you have a bit of knowledge that we don't we don't fully have even though we know all things. Is there any way <laughs> <laughs> so you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. By by divine fiat they're going, okay, this is yours. This is your control. We're we're giving it to you even though we're all equal. So it gets to be a very difficult thing. Could they know it and just not act on it? I mean yeah. we're talking about something that's so far above what we could even understand. Uh, God knows all things. Did he know the pain that he was going to have to suffer when Jesus died on the cross and they were separated? Oh, yeah. you know, how do you know something that has never, ever happened? God knows. Yeah. But, but you know, from a human point of view, we go, there's no way he could, have under, he could have known and understood. And yet, because he knows all things, he had to have known and understood, even though it had never happened. So it gets to be... If we, in our limited mindset, try to c comprehend everything there is to know about God, we'll drive ourselves crazy. Well, he knew us before we were even born, so yeah. that's a lot. Is that the general consensus, is that we take that literally? Which? Not remembering our sins. I take it literally. I don't know about general cons consensus, but by divine fiat, God says he does not remember our sins because they're underneath the blood of Christ and he has placed them underneath the blood of Christ. He tells, tells us in, in Psalms that he's placed it in the deepest sea. Uh, he's placed it as far as the east is from the west, which is no distance for him, but the idea literally, I've always taken it literally, because it has to be. If he remembers our sin, he cannot deal with us according to our sinless per perfection that he says that we have. But I can see where some would probably take it 
If he could remember it, there would be no there would be no forgiveness. He could not see us as perfect. But by divine fiat, which means a command of the royal royal throne, he says, I don't remember it. Yeah. Which means does he technically one hundred percent forget it or just not hold it to our to our account that's you know, again, how does he not remember something? I don't know. Especially in his case. How do we not remember something? We just don't think about it. Yeah. So is that the same way that God doesn't remember it? He just ceases to think about it? I don't know. You know, I, I don't believe that he has this place where he says, okay, here's a, here's a big black hole in my memory that I could just drop things in and I don't remember them anymore. So it gets to be, and this is where you get into this really interesting area. Does he just say it's paid for it? It's no longer, no longer in effect. Does he literally forget it? Um, you know, and I'm not going to even begin to get there because then the all-knowing God forgot something. <laughs> you know, so it gets to be a very interesting place uh, because it could be he says, okay, it's paid for, so I'm not even going to think about it anymore. Yeah, it's all paid for. It could also be because Jesus paid for the sins of the world. He died for it, yeah. So God could literally be saying the sins, the sins are gone and paid for because the only thing that sends somebody to hell is rejecting Jesus Christ's sacrifice. You're, you're not going, nobody goes to hell because of their sin. They're going there because they rejected perfection. And so could God literally have just said, okay, all the sins under the, under the blood, I'm not remembering it anymore. That's a possibility. For the whole world. For the whole world, because what sends you to hell is the rejection of Jesus. Jesus. That's the unforgivable sin. You've rejected Jesus, and that's the Holy Spirit's whole job, to the, especially to the lost world, is to convict them of Jesus and bring them to Jesus. So by rejecting that, they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and they, it's the unforgivable sin. We've accepted Jesus, and his job becomes different with us. It's to draw us into the power and perfection and changed life. But then that just sounds too easy, too. Yeah. See, I know really. Your sins, all the things you do, does it take you to heaven? Is it what? I mean, does it you know, take you away from heaven? It, what you don't believe in Jesus, like, mm -hmm. I could see all your sins could take me away from heaven, I'm just saying. But that doesn't have nothing to do with it. No. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not consequences for our sins. Yeah. There's deep consequences for our sin. Yeah. But it's not heaven or hell issue. Because Jesus took all the sin of the world upon him at the cross. Do we have consequences for our sin in heaven or just on earth? Lack of reward? Yeah, but other than that, because I, 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 I tend to think that you know, we don't have consequences in heaven. We don't get rewards because we were busy sinning here on earth. Right. Which, what does a reward mean? I have no idea. Yeah. But you know what? If God's going to give out rewards, I want as many of them as I can get. <laughs> I may not know what they are, but I want whatever. If he's giving out rewards, I want them. They're going to be good, whatever they are. You know, they're not going to be anything that I'm not going to want. So, you know, and I heard a pastor say that, you know, what, going, what, what kind of rewards is God giving? He goes, I don't know, but I want them. And that could have been my attitude all, all, all my life. I've never heard anybody say it like that, but it's like, what, what rewards does God have, and what do they mean in heaven? I don't know, but if he's giving them out, they mean something. Maybe like a reward would be like, I've always won a horse. 
But that's just our earthly thoughts. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what a heavenly thought Right. And so what will they mean? I don't know. Will it be positions in heaven? I do believe there's positions in heaven. We know that the apostles have high position in heaven in, in the book of Revelation. Are there other positions in, in heaven? I would say there probably are because he says you will make you rulers of cities. You know, so you have an idea. Maybe you're, you're, his reward is you get your ten cities and you get your, you know, well, you, know, you get to, you get to uh, polish, the, polish the gold streets. You know. uh, who, knows what, who knows what they are? And I, that's taken as far down as I could possibly yeah, think, yeah. You know, but you're still in heaven. <laughs> So what is a reward mean? We don't know. We have no clue because our perspective is stuck in this world. It could be something totally different than yeah. what we think. Oh, it, it, I'm, sure, I'm sure to be totally different than what we expect. Maybe there's a lot of lawn art up there. Lawn art? <laughs> <laughs> Chloride <laughs> lawn art. <laughs> Verse 8, <laughs> he says, the Father hath put you in his, he has put it in his power, he goes, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. You shall receive power. These guys have had a taste of power on a couple of occasions. There were times when Jesus, he says he breathed on them, which meant that he puts the spirit on them for a period of time. And what did they do? They went out, and when they came back, they said, the, the demons, were, we had the authority over the demons. We did miraculous things. And his statement was, don't be, don't be happy that you had authority over the demons. Be happy that you had God. Power. You know, the word here is dunamis. You know, and it's the idea of great power. We as Christians sometimes live in poverty and lack of power because we don't allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. We can have power. When we pray for people, we should expect them to be healed. We should expect things to happen and see God move because he wants to hear our prayers. We see all through the book of Acts, we're going to see God moving in mighty ways. He still moves the same way today. He's still the God that put ten plagues on Egypt and tore Egypt apart, the mightiest nation of their day, and destroyed them completely. He's still the same God that took the children of Israel into the promised land and defeated wicked nations that were very strong. He's still the same God that has done all these great things and says, I give you power. And yet we walk around like we're powerless and, and so timid most of the time. And he says, you've got power. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the other most parts of the world. Who's he saying these guys are going to be the witnesses to? These guys have been hiding. And when he, when he goes into heaven, they're going to be hiding again. They're pretty bold while he's with them for 40 days. They're out wherever he's at. But after he died, they were hiding, waiting to be killed. For 40 days, they walk with him. And then where do we find him? In the upper room, hiding again. 
hiding away from people because he's gone. Uh, we're talking about really bold guys, and he says, when you get the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be out there witnessing. And I'm sure they're thinking, yeah, right. We can do anything when you're here, but we're not so sure about this, you know, once you're gone stuff. And by the way, why are you leaving? You know, your death couldn't hold you. I mean, it doesn't say that, but you, can you imagine if we were there? Death couldn't hold you. Why, why are you leaving? We're supposed to have a kingdom soon. And you're telling us the Holy Spirit's going to come on us and, and we're going to have power, but where are you going to be? And this is before he's ascended. But you know that's what they were thinking because that's what we would have been thinking. You know, what's going on here? And after he gave them the promise that they were going to be, get power and be his, be his witnesses, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld him, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, this would have been kind of interesting. You've seen Jesus do a lot of things in your, in your time. You know, three of the disciples are on the mountain of transfiguration when he became glorified and saw him close to his, his spiritual being. But all of a sudden, while he's talking, he starts floating up into the air. Got to be something that's a little freaky to you. you know, and he keeps going up and up and up, and a cloud receives him. And the word for cloud here isn't the general puffy clouds. It is literally a cloud that has more of an entity to it. It's, it's used the same word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the cloud that led them through the wilderness that came upon the temple, on, on, on the tabernacle. Basically, they're saying the spirit of, the, of God enveloped him and took him from our sight. How high up did he go before this happened? It doesn't tell us. But he starts floating up, and then all of a sudden he gets wrapped up in a cloud and disappears from their sight. I, I still think this would be something really interesting to see. <laughs> yeah, I, here I am talking to him. Yeah. And that's exactly what it says. It said, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, all right, they're staring at heaven. Okay, Jesus, I think he's gone this time. <laughs> You know, he, he keeps disappearing on us. You know, he came into the upper room. He came into the upper room with, you know, with no, when all the doors were locked, he just showed up. Then it seemed like he disappeared again. This time they get to watch him ascend. That's probably exactly what it was. You know, is this, okay, he's, he's never done this before. Is this, is this it? And then it says, two men stood by them in white apparel. Angels. Angels appeared to them. But it says men, not angels. And the men are always referred, the angels are always referred to as men. Men in white apparel usually indicates the angels. Everybody says they're angels, and they're going to say the angels later on. Later on. Uh, and the angels have this very interesting question. You men of Galilee, why stand here, you gazing into heaven? <laughs> but God, he's up there. <laughs> well, Jesus was here, now he's up there. Yeah. yeah. But, the, but you see the funniness of this question. Uh, why, you know, but they understand it from a different perspective because they're, they're here to give a message. He's coming back. 
He's coming back. Why, why are you standing here? He, he, he told you what to do, and now you're just standing here looking into heaven. Well, we want to see him coming back down. <laughs> and you think about this, you know, how many times have we been told by God to do something? And maybe we're so amazed at it, we just stand there yeah. or sit there like, uh, no. I, I, I can't believe, you know, did God, did you really say that? Is this me thinking this? Uh, is this really what you want? And I just find this very interesting. You know, they're, they're looking up into heaven, and the angels come along and say, uh, what, what are you doing here? Well, why, why are you just standing here looking into heaven? You, you've been given your marching orders. Go, go do it. And then he says, the same Jesus that you have seen will return. Will return in the same manner. In other words, descending from the clouds. And it won't happen until Revelation when he returns with us riding behind him to, to uh, take over the world. But he's going to return. And he will touch his foot on Mount Olivet. And it will split into two. There is a fault on Mount Olivet, and it will reform. The, the, red, the Dead Sea will get fresh water into it, and everything, everything will change because it will be a mighty earthquake, and he'll take over ruling a very lush area, and he will rule from Jerusalem. These guys are on that mountain. This is an Old Testament prophecy that says that the Messiah will come and touch, touch Mount Olivet, and it will split. And these guys tend to seem to know these things. <laughs> you know, and they be, be ready to teach. They're standing on the mountain that he leaves from, knowing that he's going to come back to that mountain. And the angels say he's coming back. Now in their mind, he's coming back really, really quick. He went to heaven to go get angels or something. We don't know what he went to heaven for, but he's coming back. You know, and <laughs> and they go, go wait for the Holy Spirit. Go wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And they're expecting him to come back. Probably very quickly, because they're still, Rome is still in charge. All these bad things are still going on. And their expectation is something totally different. Expectation can get us in trouble so frequently. If we don't listen to God and we put our thoughts in that process, we can get ourselves wrapped up in the wrong areas. And here we have them totally wrapped up in Israel is going to be restored. And it's going to be restored soon. Now we find that most of the good books in the, Old, in the New Testament were written somewhere around 60, 70, 80 AD, right you know, toward, toward the end of Jerusalem. Why? Because for the first 30 years, they thought Jesus was returning in their lifetime. But as they got further and further out, they're going, okay, we need to get this stuff written down because maybe he's not coming in our lifetime. And after 30 years, my memory is getting a little dull myself. I need to write it down for me and anybody else. And so, so is everybody else. Yeah, because if they had not written the material down, it would have been lost. But they wrote it down, inspired by God to write it down. And most of it was that they wrote it down because they were afraid things were going to be lost. And 
we see here the whole attitude is he's coming back. You know, we're following him. We're waiting for him to be kingdom. Now, Revelation tells us that the disciples are going to be in seats of honor. You know, they did have a good position, and God is going to bless them just a lot later than they thought. <laughs> 2,000 years later. Yeah. You know, 2,000 years later, they're going to get the honor that they wanted, but not, you know, but not at the time they thought it was going to be. What a beautiful picture of the patience of God. And how also a picture of how impatient we get. The disciples were just as impatient as we were. Not, they wanted to understand things, and they understood it the way they thought they understood it. And how often does God work in ways totally different than we ever think that they're going to be? Like, all the time? I don't think God's ever done things my way. <laughs> he, he just has never consulted with me to make, do things my way. I have my thoughts, I have my plans, and he always does something different. You know. Wrong way, go So, but the disciples were the same way. They had to learn to listen and be obedient. And one of the things is the longer we walk with God, the more obedient we get and the more we start to hear his voice and understand his voice and the better off and the closer we are to having the right thoughts in the first place. And here is just, right now, we've just gotten through the laying down of the groundwork. This is all the review from Luke. And now we're going to get into new things after this. And we're going to see the disciples in the rest of this chapter make a bad decision. Not a serious bad decision, but they're going to make a bad decision and, and go about trying to serve God the wrong way because they're still working in their own power of their flesh until chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And we're going to see when they choose the, the replacement disciple, you know, some very interesting things. Lord, we just ask you to bless this time. We thank you for this evening. We ask you to be with us as we go forward and show us how to just be patient and learn to seek after you and not do things in our way. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. 
Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.